Podcast. Spoilers all books. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Lady Guinevere in Boston. And I'm Yoke Boy in England. And today we have an episode for you all about Tywin Lannister, Lord of Casterly Rock, Shield of Lannisport, Warden of the West, and Hand of the King. Yes, we'll be taking a look at Tywin's youth and history as Hand to King Aerys, including insight we gained from the World of Ice and Fire, as well as George's recent gift of the extended Westerlands history. And we'll consider the fan theory A plus J equals T. Yeah, we will, and we also have a special guest today. A poster from Westeros.org called Ragnarok, who has a project analysing Tywin, has kindly shared some of his work with us to form the basis of three of our segments today, which will be Tywin's role as a military commander, political leader, and father to three of the major POV characters. And Ragnarok will be joining us for two of those segments to help us present them. And we have our usual readings, music from the fandom, and adverts to break up the talking. But first, we're going to start with an overview of Tywin as a character, including how he is set up as a distant but brutal villain from the very start of the series. We're really going to dive deep into Tywin Lannister today, so we hope you stay with us. And now, let's get started. When your enemies defy you, you must serve them steel and fire. When they go to their knees, however, you must help them back to their feet. Elsewise, no man will ever bend the knee to you. And any man who must say, I am the king, is no true king at all. So, we're going to start with an overview of what we know about Tywin from the series, paying close attention to family dynamics and his reputation in order to set up follow-on discussions about fatherhood, marriage, and his political and military acumen. Okay, so we first hear Lord Tywin's name from his son-in-law, Robert Baratheon, in the crypts of Winterfell. And this is when he tells Ned that he had hoped to foster John Arryn's young son, Robert, with him until Liza fled King's Landing after her husband's death. And Ned's inner reaction to this is quite telling, as he thinks he would sooner entrust a child to a pit viper than to Lord Tywin. And we get a sense that there is an old grudge with Tywin related to the safety of children. Yes, and that's quickly clarified when Ned recalls the angry words he and Robert had exchanged when Tywin Lannister had presented Robert with the corpses of Rhaegar's wife and children as a token of fealty. So right from the start, with Ned and the Starks having been framed in the roles of chief protagonists, we're set up to feel an uncomfortable mistrust of the head of House Lannister. And this is later reinforced when Ned and Robert quarrel over the plan to assassinate Daenerys Targaryen, and Ned reminds Robert that he is no Tywin Lannister to slaughter innocents. Right, and Ned's inner thoughts again shade in the details. Here's the passage. It was said that Rhaegar's little girl had cried as they dragged her from beneath her bed to face the swords. The boy had been no more than a babe in arms, yet Lord Tywin's soldiers had torn him from his mother's breast and dashed his head against a wall. Okay, so early in the books, Tywin is framed as a commander guilty, at the very least, of capitalising on the slaughter of innocents. In fact, 
As the pieces fall into place through the memories of Ned Stark, we learn that not only did Tywin lead the force that sacked King's Landing at the end of Robert's Rebellion, but that, in Ned's opinion anyway, there was treachery involved. Yeah, he uses that word to remind Robert that there was no honour in the conquest of King's Landing. Again, his thoughts reveal the details. Aerys Targaryen must have thought that his gods had answered his prayers when Lord Tywin Lannister appeared before the gates of King's Landing with an army 12,000 strong, professing loyalty. So the Mad King had ordered his last mad act. He had opened his city to the lions at the gate. And here we have some light shed on the first mention of the Lannisters back in Winterfell Godswood in Cat's Thoughts. The Lannisters of Casterly Rock had come late to Robert's cause when victory was all but certain and Ned had never forgiven them. And we hear much later from Tywin himself on the subject of the sack. When Tyrion challenges him about Elia and Rhaegar's children, Tywin replies... When I laid those bodies before the throne, no man could doubt that we had forsaken House Targaryen forever, and Robert's relief was palpable. As stupid as he was, even he knew that Rhaegar's children had to die if his throne was ever to be secure. Yet he saw himself as a hero, and heroes do not kill children. So this is a cold and calculating man we're dealing with here, to whom the lives of children matter not at all if they don't fit in his calculus of what's best for House Lannister. In this, he couldn't be more different from someone like Ned Stark, to whom the killing of children is clearly anathema. And one other thing the sack of King's Landing illustrates is how deconstructing Tywin is a good deal like refrigerator logic, which is a common trope that explains gaps or inconsistencies in a narrative. In the same way that Tywin moving against the Riverlands while Robert lives makes no sense unless he knows about Robert's impending assassination, Tywin appearing at the gates of King's Landing with his army mere days after Robert's victory at the Trident makes little sense unless there's more to the story. We could also consider Tywin's offer to foster Robert Arryn in the same category. If Tywin didn't know about the plotting in King's Landing and the possible need to have an Arryn hostage... Would he have made this offer? Hmm, well, observations like that make sense in hindsight. But in real time, these events merely seem to fit in with the Lannisters as enemies. As we'll see, though, a close look reveals that Tywin is very much a behind-the-scenes kind of operator. And thus, things like this are well worth considering. Okay, so early on, in a Tyrion point of view... We learn that Tywin was Hand of the King to Ares for nearly 20 years, that same king that his son Jaime slaughtered during the treacherous sack of King's Landing. So while we get a less than favorable impression from Tywin through Ned's eyes, we're really left wondering about the history of this man as we get information from others. Yeah, and we learn that the crown is three million dragons in debt to Lord Tywin during Ned's first council meeting. A curious tidbit that's delivered by Peter Baelish, the Master of Coin. Say what you will about Littlefinger's relationship with Tywin Lannister, and we'll have more to say about that later, the business of making loans to the Crown must have been mutually beneficial, to say the least. 
Right. And we learned in the world of ice and fire that this business of assuming the crown's debt actually began when Tywin was hand to Ares. So while Ned claims that Ares left an overflowing treasury, we actually wonder if Tywin hasn't maybe had his hand in the cookie jar all along, so to speak. Yeah, it could be. And we'll be looking more closely at what the Well Book tells us about Tywin's youth and years as Ares' hand in the next segment. But we do think that it might be significant that Tywin paid off the Bravosi and assumed debts accrued by Jaehaerys II to Casterly Rock. So the notion of always paying your debts might do for the Lannisters, but having others indebted to you, especially the Crown, might be a theme, as we'll see in the next section. Okay, well then, it's through Tyrion's eyes that we get a more complete picture of the man, which is appropriate considering that many of the things we'll look at today closely involve Tyrion. While at the Wall, Tyrion tells Jor Mormont that he'll speak to his father about the needs of the Night's Watch, but privately thinks how dismissive Tywin will be. A truth we see in action later, when Tyrion suggests sending the gold cloaks who broke and ran during the Battle of the Blackwater to the Wall, and Tywin denies him. Yeah, he actually orders their knees broken by hammers instead. And when Tyrion is taken captive at the Inn at the Crossroads, he loudly announces that his father will pay a handsome reward for word of what had happened, while thinking to himself that his father would do no such thing. And later, after Tyrion wins free from the Eyrie with Bronn, and they travel through the Mountains of the Moon together, we get the terrible story of Tywin's punishment of Tisha, a young woman whom Tyrion had fallen in love with and married at the age of 13. Right. Tywin had Jaime tell Tyrion that she was a whore, hired to make him a man who tricked him into marrying her. We learn much later that this was a lie and that Tisha was only what she claimed to be, an orphaned crofter's daughter. But whatever she was, Tywin's punishment was simply horrible. He had her raped by his entire garrison, who paid her a silver coin each and then forced Tyrion to have his own turn and pay her in gold to signify his higher worth. Yeah, and awful as this was, when you consider it was primarily done to teach Tyrion a, quote, sharp lesson, that is, Tywin had less than no regard for the girl herself, viewing her as only a means to an end. It's really despicable from Tywin there. And we think it's interesting that when Bronn tells Tyrion, I would have killed the man who did that to me, In a moment that's almost foreshadowing of Tywin's fate, Tyrion replies, You may get the chance one day. Remember what I told you, a Lannister always pays his debts. Hmm. So, when Tyrion meets his father, following his captivity in the Vale, full circle and back at the end of the crossroads where that act in the drama began, we get our first look at and description of Lord Tywin, who seems to be a very imposing figure, and he's also quite contained. His reaction to seeing his kidnapped son is simply to sit in his chair and give Tyrion a long, searching look. And while Tyrion thanks him for going to war for him, we wonder if this war hasn't been in the making for a much longer time and have less to do with Tyrion and everything to do with Tywin's ambition for his family. 
Well, as we mentioned, given the speed with which Tywin moved against the Riverlands and his earlier offer to foster young Robert Arryn, we might have some clues there. Which, of course, would make his wrath that Pycelle moans to Ned about only so much posturing, which Ned might have suspected. Though given that he told Pycelle, if Lord Tywin attempts to interfere with the King's justice, he will have Robert to answer to. It's clear that Ned failed to see the whole board. So, we'll be taking a look at Tywin's decisions in his Riverlands campaign and following the Battle of Blackwater in upcoming segments. But before we move on, let's look at his relationship with his other children and with his siblings. Okay, so with Jamie, it becomes increasingly clear that Tywin holds to the fiction that he is the heir to Castle Rock, in spite of Jamie's vows to the King's Guard. That much is made explicit when he tells Tyrion in Storm that Casterly Rock is Jaime's birthright. Tywin is willing enough to consider Jaime as a casualty of war when he's captured by the Starks, as we'll see, but upon his return to King's Landing, Jaime is expected to do his duty for House Lannister, forsake the King's Guard, marry and return to take up his birthright as the heir to Casterly Rock. Yeah, and Jamie's refusal to abandon the station he's held for so many years against so many odds leads to a rift between father and son that hasn't healed at the time of Tywin's death. And as Jamie stands vigil over his father's corpse and wonders why he has no tears and feels no grief, he says to Tywin, Father, it was you who told me that tears were a mark of weakness in a man, so you cannot expect that I should cry for you. Yeah, so a poignant commentary on their father-son relationship there. And it seems that not many do cry at Tywin's wake. In the same passage, Jamie notes the lack of true sentiment among the mourners, and then thinks, even in the West, Lord Tywin had been more respected than beloved, and King's Landing still remembered the sack. So only Pycelle seems genuinely moved. He tells Jamie. I have served six kings, but here before us lies the greatest man I ever knew. Lord Tywin wore no crown, yet he was all a king should be. <laughs> well, we'll have more about Pycelle, Tywin's number one fan, in the next segment. And now, let's take a look at Cersei's point of view. While she, according to her brothers, likes to see herself as a female Tywin, they also observe that she lacks his patience and his intelligence, And in truth, when we see the two together, it's clear that she's acquiescent to him in most things. Surely a very un-Tywin-esque trait. Yeah, there's the notable scene where Tywin informs her that she must marry again. She rages, but Tyrion thinks that she'll give in, as she did with Robert. When she asks to leave to go, Tyrion knows that she's lost, thinking, You are the queen. He ought to be begging leave of you. But Tywin has only these words for Cersei. Remember your duty. Hmm. And after his death, she thinks more about seizing the opportunity to fill his shoes than about her personal loss. Her thoughts on the way to Tywin's wake are telling, not only of how the people of Westeros viewed him, but what kind of a father he was. It says, King's Landing had never loved Lord Tywin. He never wanted love, though. You cannot eat love, nor buy a horse with it, nor warm your halls on a cold night. 
She had heard him tell Jamie once when her brother had been no older than Tommen. Okay, so Tywin told his eight-year-old son that love is essentially worthless. We'll be looking more closely at Tywin as a father later in the episode, but in all the examples just mentioned, we see the basics of his methods. As he does in the public arena, Tywin seems to adhere in private to the Machiavellian principle of fear being better than love. This stands in direct contrast to what we'd see in the Starks, as we'll be discussing. So, Tywin's relationships with his siblings were no less complicated. Tyrion observes that Sir Kevin seldom had a thought that Tywin had not had first. But later, while imprisoned after Joffrey's death, Tyrion has a meeting with Kevin, who speaks so passionately about Tywin and the challenges he's faced that Tyrion is astonished to realize that his uncle loves his father fiercely. He is my brother, Kevin says simply. And well, Jenna later tells Jamie, It was hard for all my brothers. That shadow Tywin cast was long and black, and each of them had to struggle to find a little son. Tiger tried to be his own man, but he could never match your father, and that just made him angrier as the years went by. Geryon made japes, better to mock the game than to play and lose. But Kevin saw how things stood early on, so he made himself a place by your father's side. And when Jamie asks his aunt if she loved her brother, she tells the story of her betrothal to Emmon Frey and how Tywin stood up for her then. How could I not love him after that? That is not to say that I approved of all he did or much enjoyed the company of the man that he became, but every little girl needs a big brother to protect her. Tywin was big, even when he was little. And Jenna's betrothal will come up again later, but it's clear that she has a great deal of respect for her brother, even calling him the sort of man who comes around once every thousand years. Okay, so Tywin definitely has his fans, but overall his relationships with family members seem as cold and calculating as his public persona. And we'll be looking at the origin of that persona and the insights into Tywin's years as hand to Ares that we gained from the world of ice and fire in our next segment. Men say that Tywin never smiled, but he smiled when he wed Joanna and when Ares made him hand. When Tarbeck Hall came crashing down on Lady Ellen, that scheming bitch, he smiled then, and he smiled at Jamie's birth. Okay then, so we assume most of you have the World of Ice and Fire book that's come out by now, and we're going to take a look at that next. One thing the World of Ice and Fire brought us is lots of new insight about Tywin. Although, since the conceit of the world book is that it's written by a maester of the Citadel who gets much of his information about the reign of Ares II from Grand Meister Pycelle, who's possibly the biggest Lannister toady in the series, it has an undeniably positive Lannister slant. Yes, that's true. No less than twice, Maester Yandel, the author of the world book, states that naming Tywin his hand was the wisest thing Ares II did. And a quoted letter from Pycelle declares, The gods made and shaped this man to rule. And it seems that whatever else we might say about Tywin, there's no doubt he was shaped 
to be the way he was. A careful reading of the World Book tells us that it was the experiences of his youth that formed the man he became. So let's look at his youth. Tywin Lannister was born the eldest son of Titus, himself the third son of Lord Gerald the Golden. When he was two years old, his grandfather died, and his father Titus, whose elder brothers had predeceased Gerald, became Lord of Casterly Rock. Lord Titus was everything a son would prove not to be. Quote, Slow to anger and quick to forgive. He saw good in every man, great or small, and was too trusting by half. He was dubbed the Laughing Lion for his jovial manner. And as the World Book tells us, for a time the West laughed with him. But Titus proved utterly unsuited to rule. He was, quote, weak-willed and indecisive, had no taste for war, and laughed away insults that would have had most of his forebears shouting for their swords. He was willing to extend debts and even forgive them. His edicts were widely ignored, and corruption became widespread. Guests felt free to make mock of his lordship, even to his face, and it is said that no one laughed louder at these japes than Lord Titus himself. <laughs> and Meister Belden told the Citadel, His lordship wants only to be loved, so he laughs and takes no offence, and forgives, and bestows honours and offices, and lavish gifts on those who mock him and defy him, thinking thereby to win their loyalty. Yet the more he laughs and gives, the more they despise him. And it seems that Tywin despised his father as much as those bannermen did. Remember his sentiments on love we mentioned earlier? Well, this might be their origin. And he gave an early indication that he would be quite a different sort of lord when his weak-willed father allowed himself to be bullied into betrothing Tywin's sister, seven-year-old Jenna, to a younger son of Walder Frey. That announcement led to scorn and anger from some of Tidos's bannermen, notably Lady Ellen Tarbeck and her brother, Lord Roger Rain. But it was Tywin's reaction that drew the most notice. Though still a boy, he stood up for his sister and spoke against the ill-conceived match. And as we mentioned, this gained him the respect and love of his young sister. But Tywin was speaking up for the honour of his house, rather than explicitly for his sister, and it seems that here might be a fan to the flame of the rebellion that earned Tywin his reputation as a brutal commander early in his life. Lady Ellen had once been married to Titus's older brother. When he died without heirs, she'd been married off to Lord Walder and Tarbeck to rid the Lannisters of her, as she was both conniving and prideful and was rumoured to have attempted to seduce young Titus at a time when he had recently married Jane Marband. And since both the Tarbecks and the Reigns had sons of their own at the time Jenna was betrothed, as major bannermen of House Lannister, they might have reasonably expected to have a chance at a marriage alliance with the only daughter of the house. Right, and we'll be looking more closely at some Lannister marriages in our next segment. So, to continue with the Reigns and Tarbecks, years later, when the 18-year-old Sir Tywin was newly returned from his service in the War of the Ninepenny Kings, he set out to assert himself 
and restore the honour of his house after more than 15 years of his father's weak rule. Yeah, the newly released expanded history of the Westerlands, which can be found on George's website, makes it clear that in that time, Titus's weak rule had led to chaos in the West, with the Rains and Tarbecks at the centre of it all. The Tarbecks, led by Lady Ellen, had begun to accrue wealth during this time, in part by forcibly seizing lands from lesser lords and landed knights whose lands had joined their own. Receiving no support from Tidos, these lords and knights brought their grievances to the crown. And when King Aegon V commanded Titus to handle the matter, Titus sent his father-in-law, Lord Dennis Marbrand, to bring Lord and Lady Tarbeck to Castle Rock to answer the charges. Unfortunately, Lady Ellen's brother, Lord Roger Rain, fell upon Marbrand's force and slaughtered hundreds of knights, including Lord Dennis himself. Well, then, to add insult to injury, the Reigns soon appeared at Casterly Rock, claiming a tragic misunderstanding, and gained pardons not only for themselves, but for Lord and Lady Tarbeck as well. And while this pardon might have been granted in part, at least because Titus's young son Kevin was serving as a page at Castamere, the result was that Lord Titus had proved himself unwilling or unable to enforce justice in his lands, and petty wars broke out, outlaws and reavers preyed upon the land, and thrice the crown had to interfere to restore order. Well, there was some hope for the West, but when Aegon V died at Summerhall, his heir Jaehaerys proved less strong and was soon occupied with the War of the Ninepenny Kings, where Tywin acquitted himself well in the retinue of young Aerys Targaryen, even earning the honour of knighting the young prince, whom he had been friends with since serving as a page in Aegon V's court. And such was the state of the Westerlands when Tywin returned from the wars. His weak-willed father had allowed vassals, rivals, and foes all to ride roughshod over the authority of House Lannister. And now we have the full explanation of Kevin's remark to Tyrion, Tywin seems a hard man to you, I know, but he is no harder than he's had to be. The first thing he did to assert himself was to demand repayment of all loans made by his father, those unable to pay were required to send hostages to Casterly Rock. Tywin sent out a force of 500 knights under the command of his brother Kevin to rid the West of outlaws and enforce his edicts. And while some obeyed, Tywin's edicts and collectors were met with sullen resistance and open defiance by many. Lord Roger Rain laughed and counselled his vassals to do nothing. The World Book tells us that Lord Walderun Tarbeck, who had managed numerous loans from Lord Titus and embarked on an ambitious restoration of his lands and keep, rode to Castle Rock to protest, confident in his ability to cow Lord Titus and force him to rescind his son's edicts. But he found himself facing Sir Tywin instead, who had him consigned to a dungeon and Lady Tarbeck responded by taking Lannister hostages. Tidos intervened and had the hostages exchanged, but Tywin, quote, never weakened in his resolve to bring these overmighty vassals to heel. And a year later, he commanded the Tarbecks and the Reigns to appear at Casterly Rock to, quote, answer for their crimes. Their predictable refusal 
led to Tywin's signature moment, the utter destruction of both houses. Right, first Tywin marched on House Tarbeck and slaughtered the entire house in a short and bloody battle, followed by the destruction of their keep. Then, when the rains moved all of the men, women and children of their household into the mines below their seat at Castamere for refuge, Tywin sealed all the exits and caused a nearby river to be diverted, and he flooded the mines, extinguishing the entire house with one incomprehensibly brutal act. Yeah, and for that complete story, visit georgerrmartin.com, where, as we said, George has recently gifted us with the expanded version of the history of the Westerlands. So, while the World Book allows that his methods drew censure from some, it goes on to tell us, none could dispute that Sir Tywin restored order to the Westerlands after the chaos and conflict of his father's rule. So here begins Tywin Lannister's rule of fear, a theme that will follow him for the rest of his story. And Tywin's destruction of House Lannister's overmighty vassals might seem to be in keeping with the advice of the real-world Renaissance political philosopher Niccolo Machiavelli, who said, He who quells disorder by a very few examples will in the end be more merciful than he who from too great leniency permits things to take their course and so to result in rapine and bloodshed. For these hurt the whole state, whereas the severities of the prince injure individuals only. Yeah, clearly Tywin felt the need to bring these houses to their knees, in large part for the crime, perhaps as Tywin saw it, of failing to respect the power of Casterly Rock. A crime that none in the Westlands would repeat in his lifetime, for what it's worth. So he was successful in his goal, but we wonder about the price. Because while Machiavelli instructs that fear is to be used as a means to an end, in this case, order and obedience from vassals, he also cautions that above all, a prince must not interfere with the lives, women and property of his subjects without justification. And we believe that here is the first example of Tywin exceeding the bounds of justifiable action, even by Machiavellian standards. Yeah, it does seem excessive, but still, within a year of this event, his friend Ares became the king, and at 20 years of age, Sir Tywin Lannister became the youngest hand in the history of the Seven Kingdoms. And King Ares soon became known for his love of parties and women and for his grandiose schemes, including a plan to build a new wall a hundred leagues north of the existing one and claim all the lands in between for the crown, and another to make the Dornish deserts bloom by digging a great underground canal beneath the mountains to bring water down from the rainwood. Yes, classic Ares. But while the Mad King moved from one fancy to another and one paramour to another. The World Book says, The seven kingdoms prospered greatly during the first decade of his reign, for the king's hand was all that the king himself was not. Diligent, decisive, tireless, fiercely intelligent, just, and stern. Yes, and keeping in mind that those are probably the words of Pycelle, we learn that Tywin repealed many of the laws of Aegon V that the great lords had objected to. 
He also reduced tariffs and taxes on shipping in King's Landing, Lannisport, and Old Town to promote trade in those cities, invested in infrastructure, held tournaments throughout the realm, encouraged trade with the free cities, and, as we mentioned earlier, repaid debts owed to the Bravosi with gold from Casterly Rock, thus making the crown indebted to House Lannister. And yet we're told, in spite of all of this, Tywin was little loved. This echoes Jamie's Lord Tywin had been more respected than beloved, and Cersei's King's Landing had never loved Tywin, though in answer we're told that Tywin never desired love. He found it worthless, and in light of the facts that his father was by all accounts a likeable man, probably viewed the love of vassals and subjects as a sign of weakness. It seems George is giving us a fairly straightforward take on that Machiavellian theme, it's better to be feared than loved. In addition, Machiavelli also advised that it was better for the ruler not to be generous with his subjects. That would only lead to him being despised. And Lord Titus is testament to that. However, Machiavelli also goes on to say, spending what is someone else's does not take reputation from you, but it adds to you. Only spending your own hurts you. So, remember those lavish tourneys? Yes, and who wants to bet that the crown paid for those? At any rate, it's clear that Tywin is being presented as a classic Machiavellian leader from the start, and we'll see more examples of this coming up. What's interesting is the degree to which Titus is shown to be in contrast, being an anti-Machiavellian almost, and that's as if Tywin had learned all the lessons of what Machiavelli recommended a leader not to do from his own youthful experience. Mm, so, as time went on, and whispers in the kingdom grew that Tywin was the real ruler of the land, the relationship between Tywin and Ares became frayed. This wasn't helped by the apparent and bizarre rivalry between the two men over Tywin's wife, Joanna. Hmm, yeah, yeah, after he was made hand. Tywin wed his first cousin, Joanna Lannister, who'd come to the capital some years earlier as a lady-in-waiting to Princess, and now Queen, Rhaella. The World Book tells us that they were children together at Castley Rock, and we know from Jamie's POV in Storm that they were betrothed prior to Tywin becoming hand. Grandmeister Purcell wrote... Only Joanna Lannister knows the man beneath the armour, and all his smiles belong to her and her alone. I do a vow that I have even observed her make him laugh, not once, but upon three separate occasions. Very nice, Pycelle voice, young boy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. However... From the World Book, we learn that, apparently, rumours abounded that Joanna had been in a relationship with Ares since his father's coronation in 259. And while the author dismisses that rumour out of hand, he cannot deny that Ares was known to have taken, quote, liberties during Tywin and Joanna's bedding, a story that was previously told by Barristan to Daenerys in A Dance with Dragons. Nor can Maester Yandel deny that Rhaella dismissed Joanna shortly after her marriage to Tywin, and that Rhaella was known to have said that she did not approve of Ares, quote, turning my ladies into his whores. And while the World Book tells us that Joanna seldom visited King's Landing after that, 
She managed to conceive and give birth to Jamie and Cersei in 266. The following year, Ares and Tywin brought the court to Castle Rock after Lord Titus's death, and Joanna is noted to have brought the twins to King's Landing in 272 to present before the court. Joanna was humiliated on that occasion when the king, very much in his cups, asked her if nursing them had ruined your breasts, which were so high and proud. Tywin's enemies at court were highly amused, but Tywin himself attempted to return his chain of office the next day, though Ares refused to accept his resignation. Well, within a year, Lady Joanna died giving birth to her third child, Tyrion. Because the babe was a dwarf and reputedly malformed and monstrous, Ares callously said about Tywin and his loss, The gods cannot abide such arrogance. They have plucked a fair flower from his hand and given him a monster in her place to teach him some humility at last. The world book tells us that afterwards, quote, no shred of the old affection between the two men endured. So, while Tywin continued with the business of ruling the kingdom, Ares became increasingly erratic, and tensions between the two men continued to grow. And all the years of friction would come into play in the defiance of Duskendale. When Lord Dennis Darklin demanded a charter from the Crown that would allow his town more autonomy and trade, Tywin as hand refused and Darklin retaliated by refusing to pay his taxes due to the crown and then inviting Ares to come to Duskendale to negotiate a settlement. It seems unlikely Ares would have accepted the offer had not Tywin advised him strongly against it, at which point the king decided he would travel to Duskendale after all and deal with Lord Dennis personally. And so Ares went to Duskendale with a small entourage and was promptly taken hostage by Lord Darklin, with many of his guard killed in the process. Tywin surrounded Duskendale, blockading it by land and sea. And while Lord Dennis may have expected Tywin to treat with him to save the life of his royal hostage, perhaps he and his mearish wife, Lady Sorella, were unfamiliar with Tywin's resolve. Yeah, the parallels to the Reigns and Tarbecks are striking here. And Tywin once again proved himself willing to endanger the life of a hostage when he sent a final demand for surrender. The World Book tells us that Lord Tywin promised that if Darklin refused, he would take the town by storm and put every man, woman and child within to the sword. And the World Book also remarks that, quote, Scholars have debated ever since as to Lord Tywin's intent. Did he believe Lord Darklin would back down? Or was he in truth willing and perhaps even eager to see Ares die so that Prince Rhaegar might take the Iron Throne? And while we ourselves could debate that point in light of the ever-increasing tension between the king and his hand, there can be no doubt that Tywin seemed as willing to rain destruction upon House Darklin as he was to obliterate his own unruly vassals, the Reigns and the Tarbecks. Definitely in the aftermath of Ares's dramatic rescue by Barristan Selmy, Ares's punishment of House Darklin seems like a page straight from Tywin's book. 
The Darklings were executed, every man, woman and child of them, and even their good kin of House Hollard were attainted and destroyed, with a notable exception of young Dontos, whose life was spared as a boon to Sir Barristan. Lady Sarala had a tongue and a womanly parts torn out before she was burned alive. So, the cruelest of punishments for these unruly subjects, no matter where the orders came from. And now the groundwork was laid for Robert's rebellion, because in the aftermath of the defiance, Eris's madness, which had previously manifested itself in erratic behavior, now reigned unchecked. He refused to let anyone touch him. He stopped bathing and grooming. He would allow no blades in his presence save the swords of his king's guard, and he didn't leave the Red Keep for years. Yeah, this also marked the time when Ares became obsessed with dragonfire and wildfire, attempting to hatch eggs that had been found on Dragonstone, elevating Wisdom Rossart of the Guild of Pyromancers to the status of Lord and Council Member, and using wildfire as the king's justice. He also became convinced that his son and heir, Rhaegar, had conspired with Tywin Lannister to have him slain by Lord Darklyn at Duskendale when they had stormed the town, so that Rhaegar could take the Iron Throne and marry Tywin's daughter. And so he brought Varys from Pentos to serve as an informant and spy. And in the chaos of the Mad King's court... Factions arose, with lords supporting whomever they saw the most profit in. And to counter Tywin's influence, Ares called upon his cousin, Stephen Baratheon, to seek out a bride of Valyrian blood for his yet unmarried heir, Rhaegar. Rumor had it that upon successful completion of his mission, Ares would name Stephon Hand and have Tywin arrested and executed for treason. When Stefan was killed in a shipwreck off Storm's End as he returned from Essos, the World Book tells us that King Aerys flew into a rage and told Grandmaster Purcell that Tywin Lannister had somehow divined his royal intentions and arranged for Lord Baratheon's murder. If I dismiss him as hand, he will kill me too, the king told the Grandmaster. Well, whatever Tywin's intentions had been with regard to Rhaegar... In the following year, Rhaegar made a match with the young Princess of Dawn, Elia Martell, who had apparently once been offered for Tywin's son Jaime, as we'll discuss. However, it's hinted in the World Book, and is quite overt in the main series' point of views, that Elia wasn't seen as a big impediment to Tywin's plans for Cersei, given her poor health after the birth of her first child. At any rate, even Tywin's big fan, Pycelle, can't deny that he's been implicated in some plotting that involved Rhaegar. Right. So it's well known that Cersei's machinations led to Aerys naming Jaime to his Kingsguard on the eve of the tourney of Harrenhal, Tywin's resignation as hand and refusal to attend a tourney, and Aerys' own unexpected attendance which may have set in motion events that led directly to Robert's Rebellion. Yeah, and it's also well known that Tywin stayed out of the Rebellion until the last moment, arriving at the gates of King's Landing just ahead of Ned Stark, professing friendship to Ares and taking the city really by treachery, in Stark's words. And as we alluded to earlier, 
We wonder if Tywin was prepared to ally with whichever side seemed more likely to gain him the power he desired. Clearly, he demonstrates here the Machiavellian quality of taking advantage of fortune, as we'll see he does on other occasions. Yes, he does. And we have to wonder as well what Tywin thought of Robert's choice of hand when he ascended the throne. As the World Book tells us, Though all know Lord Tywin might well have become hand again, the king in his graciousness gave that office to his old friend and protector, Lord John Arryn, instead. Was that decision perhaps seen as an affront by the prideful Lord Tywin? Did it seal Robert's fate? Hmm, it's interesting, because we've already pointed out the surprising speed with which Tywin was able to move armies into the Riverlands in the run-up to the War of the Five Kings, and his seemingly unlikely offer to foster John Arryn's heir might indicate some foreknowledge of certain events as well. Right, but as many of these events illustrate, Tywin wasn't always in control of the situation. As Littlefinger schools Elaine in the Eyrie, in the Game of Thrones, even the humblest pieces can have wills of their own. Sometimes they refuse to make the moves you've planned for them. And so, in our next segment, we'll be taking a closer look at how hubris and the inability to control the pieces upon the board may have impacted Tywin's political ambitions throughout the rest of the story. But first, here's a reading of Jamie telling Tywin that he is no humble pawn in this game. I am tired of having highborn women kicking bales of shit at me, father. No one ever asked me if I wanted to be Lord Commander of the King's Guard, but it seems I am. I have a duty you do, a duty to House Lannister. You are the heir to Casterly Rock, that is where you should be. Tommen should accompany you as your ward and squire. The Rock is where he'll learn to be a Lannister, and I want him away from his mother. I mean to find a new husband for Cersei. Oberyn Martell, perhaps, once I convince Lord Tyrell that the match does not threaten Highgarden. And it's past time you were wed. The Tyrells are now insisting that Marjorie be wed to Tommen, but if I were to offer you instead, no. Jamie had heard all that he could stand. No, more than he could stand. He was sick of it. Sick of lords and lies, sick of his father, his sister, sick of the whole bloody business. No, 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 no. How many times must I say no before you'll hear it? Oberyn Martell, the man's infamous, and not just for poisoning his sword. He has more bastards than Robert, and beds with boys as well. And if you think for one misbegotten moment that I would wed Joffrey's widow... Lord Tyrell swears the girl's still a maiden. She can die a maiden as far as I'm concerned. I don't want her, and I don't want your rock. You are my son. I am a knight of the King's Guard, the Lord Commander of the King's Guard, and that's all I mean to be. Firelight gleamed golden in the stiff whiskers that framed Lord Tywin's face. A vein pulsed in his neck, but he did not speak, and did not speak and did not speak. The strange silence went on until it was more than Jamie could endure. Father, he began, you are not my son. 
You say you are the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, and only that. Very well, sir. Go do your duty. So now we're going to take a close look at Tywin the Politician. As we've discussed, Tywin served many years as Hand of the King and was reputed to be a savvy, if ruthless, political operator, probably the embodiment of a Machiavellian leader in the story. But we see some reasons to question his political sensibilities, and as we've mentioned, we're going to be using the analysis of our friend Ragnarok here, the first of three segments today based upon his work, and Ragnarok will be joining us shortly for the other two. So, as we'll see in the upcoming segment on Tywin as a military man, in the opening of The War of the Five Kings, Tywin's assessment of Rob and the resolve of the North is off. But he also dismisses the Vale political situation and seems content to leave the management of the Vale to Littlefinger. Yeah, and while Stannis and Renly both declaring themselves king seems to be a surprise, it's reasonable to think that Tywin must have expected to fight the Stormlands and the Reach, given Renly's Marjorie and Robert scheme. And as far as Dorne goes, Tywin may have thought their Baratheon hatred was close enough to their Lannister hatred to prevent an alliance, but they could just as easily have ended up fighting for Stannis in exchange for a promise of justice for Ilya. And such hypotheticals can be bounced around, but the fact is that following Cersei's marriage to Robert, Tywin failed to forge a political alliance with any other major house. The lack of an alliance or much evidence of political manoeuvring to create one, stands out as odd. Right, it does. So, once Tywin returns to King's Landing as Hand, we get a better picture of his political manoeuvring. In Tyrion's first Storm chapter, we see Tywin working on Red Wedding-related letters, and it's clearly not the first exchange, since Roos was already conspiring against Rob at that point. And Tywin's political focus on Storm is on Stannis, Dawn and the Tyrell Alliance. He seems to account Rob's defeat as a foregone conclusion with the Red Wedding plans in motion. As we mentioned in the previous segment, he started his political career by slaughtering House Rain and Tarbeck and moved to treachery to gain entrance into King's Landing and crush House Targaryen. And now Tywin escalates to guest right violations. We'll look at this later, but there's a pattern here of exceeding the accepted rules of war. Okay, so our next political insight comes at the first council meeting Tyrion attends. Spoils are divided. Littlefinger's marriage to Lysa is approved. What to do with Balon is put on hold. And Tyrion replaces Peter as Master of Coin. Tyrion notes that, quote, It had all been settled beforehand, and this discussion's no more than a show. Yeah, he's thinking of his father, but what escapes him is that the same is true for the agreements between Littlefinger and the Tyrells. Littlefinger going off to the Vale is part of the plot to assassinate Joffrey, frame Tyrion and steal Sansa. The Tyrell contingent and Littlefinger settled as much, if not more than, the Lannisters before this mummer's show of a council meeting began. Right, this Tyrell alliance was bought with Joffrey's life, and Littlefinger is the one who sold it. While Tywin is planning his reigns of Castamere on the Starks and Tullys, the Tyrells are planning one of their own on his house. In that light, it's curious to look at the spoils of war. Yeah, it is. Mace turns his second son into a great lord in the blink of an eye, and most of the Tyrell vassals feast on spoils. 
but the only Lannister man to get anything of note is Littlefinger. Littlefinger gets Lord Paramount of the Riverlands from Tywin for essentially planning the assassination of Joffrey and setting Tywin's house against itself in the aftermath. And after getting the Riverlands, Littlefinger is further rewarded with a marriage that effectively delivers him the Vale and a Tully bride to help secure his empty title in the Riverlands. He's being set up with two of the Seven Kingdoms, and Kevin Lannister gets nothing. Well, later Tywin's sister Jenna has some interesting commentary on the disposition of Darry and Riverrun that she gives to Jaime in Feast that's worth considering relative to the outcome of this meeting. She tells Jaime that, for a variety of reasons, quote, Tywin should have granted Riverrun to Kevin and Darry to M. I would have told him so if he had troubled to ask me, but when did your father ever consult with anyone but Kevin? So considering that land is power... House Tyrell is really waxing in power now and has consolidated their hold in the Reach and rewarded their loyal vassals as well. They're improving their position should a power struggle with the Lannisters ensue in King's Landing. By comparison, House Lannister's power is relatively stagnant, with Lancel getting Darry as the one notable addition, and Jenna's husband, Afray, getting the, quote, poison prize of Riveron. In short, Tywin believes he's orchestrating the future based on his secret knowledge of the Red Wedding, but in truth, it's the Tyrells orchestrating the future based on their secret knowledge of the Purple Wedding. Yes, it is. And getting back to Dawn, Tyrion won Dawn to the Lannister cause with a promise of justice for Elia in the form of Gregor Clegane's head. Oberyn showed up to King's Landing, intent on taking the head that spoke the order as well, which explains Tywin's reluctance to play that game. But the idea that Dawn would settle for anything less than Gregor's head seems almost delusional. Yeah, it really does. And Tywin's idea of having Tyrion tell Oberyn that the man he wanted was Amory Lorch, already dead at the hands of Vargo Hope, was a good one, but we can be sure that if the Purple Wedding hadn't offered Oberyn his opportunity, he was most assuredly going to do something bad from the Lannister perspective. Very, very bad, as evidenced by this passage. I came for justice for Elia and her children, and I will have it, starting with this lummox Gregor Clegane, but not, I think, ending there. Before he dies, the enormity that rides will tell me whence came his orders, Please assure your Lord Father of that. Okay, and while we can't pretend to know what bad thing Oberyn might have done, politically the refusal to honour Tyrion's deal, while a crownable Marcellus sits hostage in Dawn, seems like very poor risk management, as well as potentially offending a very dangerous Dornishman. And as events played out, here's Tywin's reaction to offending Dorn. If Stannis should win Sunspear to his cause, he might prolong this war for years, so we will not offend the Martells any further for any reason. The Dornishmen are free to go, and you will heal Sir Gregor. So, we wonder what part of that threat was unpredictable while Oberyn lived. 
based on this later reaction, the earlier refusal to turn over Gregor comes off as more rooted in old grudges than cost-benefit analysis. And it's worth noting he never mentions that the Martells hold his granddaughter. Right, he didn't. And as events played out, the idea that Oberyn might champion Tyrion once Cersei named Gregor as the crown's defender wasn't exactly a stretch. Cersei wanted Tyrion dead, but executing him would cause a rift with Jaime, and her offer to wed Oberyn in exchange for a guilty vote may have been more to avoid that situation than knuckling under to her father's demands. Hmm, it's clear Tywin needed a middle ground option to obtain peace in his own house. Tyrion's trial is a political disaster, and one of Tywin's own making, with his long-standing failure to politically unite his children. It's also possibly a consequence of his successfully instilling rivalries in his children, as we'll discuss later on. Okay, so now we're going to look at another critical aspect of political maneuvering. As we saw in the reading we led with, Forging marriage alliances for his children becomes something of a priority for Tywin in the aftermath of the Battle of the Blackwater. But historically, there seems reason to suspect House Lannister has been a bit plagued by marriage issues. Yes, it has. To begin with, Lord Titus never remarried, and his mistress became a source of domestic distress amongst his children. As we mentioned earlier, when Jenna's marriage to Emon Frey was announced at a feast with half the Western attendance, the head of House Rain left the hall angrily and Lady Tarbeck laughed, and we speculated whether this was tied to the rebellion of the Rains and Tarbecks. Yeah, but another glaring issue is Tywin himself not remarrying. Nothing specifically says he has to remarry, but he is the prime marriage candidate for House Lannister, and over the time since Lady Joanna passed away, there would have been circumstances in which a marriage alliance certainly would have been beneficial. Yeah, and since he was relatively young when Joanna died, it really should have been a consideration, especially when matched with his demands that Cersei remarry. And while the Cersei-Robert marriage was no doubt approved by Tywin, it was actually proposed by John Arryn, and so isn't one that Tywin brokered. So Tywin supposedly wanted to marry Jaime to Lysa Tully, and we know that Sumner Craycall sent Jaime to Riverrun with a message, and that Lord Hoster sat him next to Lysa for a fortnight while mulling the reply. While it seems that Tywin arranged this, it's curious that he never mentioned it to Jaime, and neither did Craycall. And it's interesting that Jamie had no idea it was on the table for close to a year after his visit to Riverrun until Cersei told him. We also learned from Oberyn that Joanna and the Princess of Dawn seem to have arranged for either Jamie and Elia or Oberyn and Cersei prior to Joanna dying in childbirth. Right, and what stands out about this is Tywin's tactless rejection following Joanna's death and the insulting offer of Tyrion. Joanna seems to have had a genuine ally in Dorne for House Lannister, and Tywin's mourning was a more than polite reason to decline. He telegraphed his intentions for Cersei and Rhaegar in an insulting fashion, and made Elia a rival for Cersei at best, and turned Dorne from ally to enemy at worst, all over a lack of manners. Right, and it seems like a better manoeuvre would have been to forge a match between Jamie and Elia, 
therefore taking Elia off the table as a rival for the potential Cersei-Rhaegar marriage and keeping the Martell alliance that his wife had worked to create. Given the Martell's Targaryen heritage and the fact that Ares had personally visited Dawn a few years prior to Tyrion's birth, it seems like a marriage alliance between Dawn and the Iron Throne should really have been on Tywin's radar. And speaking of Cersei and Rhaegar, that was another debacle. Tywin had mentioned it to Cersei years prior, so he'd clearly been scheming to make it happen for some time. He held an elaborate tournament with Ares and Rhaegar in attendance, but never broached the actual marriage topic with Ares until the morning before he intended to announce it. It's possible that Ares was fine with the marriage and knew that this was the reason for Tywin's tournament and that it was Rhaegar who had rejected Cersei. But that still doesn't explain why Tywin didn't broach the topic beforehand. Not to mention that, but according to the world book, Tywin suggested that it was past time the king's heir wed and produced an heir of his own. And then he followed that up by offering his 10-year-old daughter as the solution. <laughs> yeah, that seems a bit short-sighted. And now Tyrion is another marriage curiosity. Tywin claims to have made a long list of offers, but we know from Oberyn that at least the Martell offer was nonsense. Infant dwarf expected to die next week aside, asking any woman to wait until her 30s for an infant to grow up before marrying and bearing children is insulting on its face. Well, apparently Tywin also made a similar suggestion to Hoster Tully for Tyrion and Lysa. And he told Tyrion that Lord Hoster wanted a whole man for his daughter. And that, quote, In later years, I had similar answers from Yon Royce and Leighton Hightower. I finally stooped so low as to suggest you might take the Florent girl, Robert de Flowered, in his brother's wedding bed. Hmm, one could wonder if these weren't actually lies or exaggerations made to hide Tywin's own shortcomings in forging alliances. So remember that Tyrion is a Lannister regardless of his status as a dwarf. There must be any number of lords who would gladly take a dwarf as a son-in-law for access to House Lannister, especially after Jaime joins the Kingsguard, and Tyrion is in fact the heir to this mighty house. Yeah, look at it this way. Is Walder Frey really that much more desirable at age 90 than Tyrion Lannister? Now, aside from personal issues, it seems that Tyrion's status as heir is what really prevents Tywin from negotiating a marriage for him. Tyrion's potential father-in-law is going to quite reasonably expect his grandchildren to inherit the rock one day. It's very likely that Tywin didn't want another lord stepping on his casterly rock is Jamie's birthright delusion. Yeah, so this is why we wonder if the problem is in fact Tywin and not Tyrion. And this brings us to Tywin's political marriage scheming in A Storm of Swords. Okay, so first we have Tyrion and Sansa and Cersei and Willis. It's apparent that Tywin wants Cersei out of King's Landing and away from Tommen. Forcing her to marry seems almost more of a punishment for Cersei than a political maneuver, but it does serve the purpose of taking Willis out of play and appeasing the Tyrells for their loss of Sansa. 
Well, Tywin seems to view Cersei as a poisonous influence as he tries to marry her to a house he sees as political rivals. And it isn't a bad chess move. If the Tyrells agreed and Cersei played the role Tywin wanted, it could have turned into an excellent chess move. Olenna sinks the idea because she still has her eyes on Sansa for Willis after the Purple Wedding. So in the end, it comes back to the issue of trusting Littlefinger. Tywin just can't see the whole board. And some believe that Tyrion and Sansa is a serious plan Tywin has for claiming Winterfell and the North in the name of House Lannister at some future point. Given that Tywin is known for exterminating houses, not sparing them, it seems more like a Reigns of Castamere on House Stark. Yeah, in both the Stark and Tully cases, the former seat of the Lord Paramount is given to the primary rival vassal, Riverrun to a Frey and Winterfell to a Bolton. Also, in both cases, the castle is stripped as a seat of the Lord Paramount. House Tully is arguably on the way to extinction, and outside of Sansa, the same is true of House Stark. And had Tywin wanted Tyrion to be a Lord Paramount, he could have simply given him the Riverlands. That's a region of far more strategic importance to the Westerlands, and its lack of natural geographic defences would help keep future Riverlands rulers loyal to the primary Lannisters at Casterly Rock. Right, but instead he speaks vaguely to Tyrion of the North going to his future sons with Sansa, while withholding the details of the deal he'd struck with the Boltons. He tells Tyrion, Roose Bolton becomes Warden of the North and takes home Arya Stark, without recognising that Roose intended to marry Ramsay to Arya, by which means the Boltons would lay claim to Winterfell and the North. Well, Tywin's intent here matters a great deal for piecing together his agenda. For those who interpret his northern ambitions as sincere, the more completely that can be tied into his other actions in King's Landing, the better. Has Tywin underestimated Roos Bolton as he apparently does the Tyrells, Martells, and Peter Baelish? It's possible, and as for that, we heard Tywin's final political revelation to Jamie in the reading that we began with. You have a duty to House Lannister. You are the heir to Castle Rock. That is where you should be. I mean to find a new husband for Cersei. Oberyn Martell, perhaps, once I convince Lord Tyrell that the match does not threaten Highgarden. And it is past time you were wed. The Tyrells are now insisting that Marjorie be wed to Tommen, but if I were to offer you instead... Hmm, so besides confirming Tywin's ongoing Jamie is my heir bias, here's another example of Tywin playing chess on the wrong board, given the post-purple wedding plotting unfolding around him. Is this a good and plausible plan? It is for Tywin, but it's not clear how Mace Tyrell would accept it even if the Purple Wedding hadn't been a Tyrell plot. Mace backed Renly and was prepared to do the same with Joffrey and now Tommen to make his daughter a queen. Yeah, Tywin of all people ought to understand that, given his ambitions for Cersei. His future lady of Castle Rock, a fair exchange for a queen's crown. 
It seems like a very poor deal from the Tyrell perspective. Yes, it really does. And objectively, all Tywin's plotting during A Storm of Swords is futile because of the Purple Wedding plot. This seems to stem from him trusting Littlefinger. Tywin's been fed much intelligence by Littlefinger, including the Tyrell-Sansa marriage plot. It's clear that Baelish is an expert at appearing trustworthy when he isn't. We have to wonder why Tywin wasn't more suspicious of him. Which leads to the question of how far back Littlefinger's relationship with Tywin goes. It does seem like Tywin's actions during the War of the Five Kings and his aftermath might make more sense the further back his relationship with Littlefinger goes. Right, and we think it could go back as far as to when Littlefinger first came to King's Landing. And now getting back to Tywin's relationship with Tyrion. It's clear that Jaime wants Tyrion to live, and Cersei doesn't. It seems like Tywin was intending to use Tyrion's trial to force the hand of whichever twin didn't bend to his will, Jaime, as it turns out. That would make Tyrion's choice of Oberyn as his champion all the more enraging to Tywin because it destroyed both the Cersei marriage, which she had evidently agreed to, and Tywin's Jaime leverage. So in general terms, it seems that Tywin believes that he can exploit tensions between any factions that cross his chessboard, whether it's Dawn and the Reach or his own children. But he apparently underestimates the potential scheming of other players. This egotism, which could even be termed sociopathic, given his absolute lack of empathy for the pawns in his game, including his own children, actually blinds him to the game that's being played out right under his nose. Yeah, so it seems like the takeaway is that Tywin is not the best chess player. Ironically, in spite of his stated obsession with the legacy of House Lannister, his failures as a politician may have led to its checkmate. So, up next, we'll take a look at Tywin as a military commander, and Ragnarok will be joining us for that. But first, it's time for a song. Here's Aziz Althori with The Reigns of Castamere. I know the 
coat of gold or a coat of red A lion still has claws But mine are long and sharp, my lord As long and sharp as yours And so he spoke, and so he spoke The Lord of Castamere Aziz from History of Westeros podcast. We love collaborating with them in different ways, and when we told Aziz we were working on a Tywin episode, he agreed to record a version of The Reigns of Castamere. We really love it, and we hope that you do too. So thanks to Aziz, and check out the History of Westeros podcast, and let him know that this was appreciated. And Reigns of Castamere is an appropriate song, given the direction we're going to be taking now. As Lady Gwyn mentioned, we're welcoming Ragnarok to the show now for a look at Tywin as a military commander. Hello Ragnarok and welcome to Radio Westeros. Hi Oak Boy, it's great to be here with you. And it's great to have you. First of all, thanks for sharing your analysis with us for this episode. We're really enjoying unpacking Tywin and appreciate your contribution. So now... To pick up where we left off in the last segment, where we discussed your analysis as Tywin as a politician, his virtues as such might be in question. But there's one thing that's telegraphed clearly by House Lannister in-universe, and that's the philosophy that when you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. Yes, and while that certainly seems to be the case as events unfold before us, it's far from the historical truth. Prior to Tywin and his Reigns of Castamere philosophy, the Game of Thrones was not a zero-sum game. You win or your children get involuntary daycare. You win or you go to the wall. You win or you lose some mills and a few beehives. The Golden Company is comprised of people who played the game and neither won nor died. Even in the Mystery Night, Blood Raven lets Butterwell keep a tenth of his wealth along with his life in what's supposed to be an exceedingly harsh punishment. So, as you pointed out... One of the most significant contributions Tywin Lannister makes to the plot of this series is the transformation of the Game of Thrones to the zero sum, you win or you die. Right, and as far as the military aspect goes, as one of the more powerful High Lords, Tywin in most cases is going to have the biggest army. 
As a commander, Tywin ought to be a traditionalist looking for a more or less straightforward slugfest rather than an out-of-the-box military innovator. The underlying meaning of the popular military phrase, God is on the side of the big battalions, is that the biggest army usually wins. Okay, and Tywin already brings the tactical and strategic advantage of his scorched-earth thinking and value system, the Westerosi equivalent of the Machiavellian idea that enemies are to be crushed rather than caressed. While other lords are concerned with the cost of victory, the price of rebuilding, and dead family members, etc., Tywin is willing to write off whatever he must, including Jamie. Right, after the Green Fork, with the news of Jamie's defeat and Joffrey's foolhardiness, Tywin elects to send Tyrion to King's Landing to take his place as Hand of the King. When Tyrion asks him why, Tywin replies, You are my son. And Tyrion's thoughts are quite telling about Tywin's mindset here. That was when he knew, you have given him up for lost, he thought. You bloody bastard. You think Jamie's good as dead, so I'm all you have left. Well, this characterization of him wanting to win at any cost seems to be reflected in his actions on the field, the assessments we hear of him, and those who have learned lessons from him. John Connington did everything he thought he could to win the Battle of the Bells, up to the acceptable limits of the rules of war. But we're told Tywin would have exceeded those limits. In A Feast for Crows, we see Jamie take a page from his father's book and threaten to assault River Run with nothing but Riverlands men in the opening wave. And later we see Tyrion note that his father would have poisoned all the wells around Moraine, even though those wells would obviously be much needed after a victory. And we see Tywin's scorched earth philosophy in the three main military actions we know of prior to the series. As we've discussed, he slaughtered the Reigns and Tarbex, he slaughtered House Darklin at Duskendale, though Ares seems to deserve some credit there, and he slaughtered House Targaryen during the sack of King's Landing. He was willing to assault Duskendale while Ares was still hostage. He wanted to send Lord Tarbeck back to his wife in three pieces while she held three Lannister hostages and he gained entry into King's Landing through treachery prior to the sack. And while he couldn't know the true danger in King's Landing, it couldn't have escaped him that his son was in the city as an effective hostage. In each case, we see a total annihilation of the enemy and a willingness to exceed the accepted rules of war and or write off any hostages as effectively already dead. But in spite of this, in a storm of swords, in the aftermath of Tywin's victory at the Blackwater and the Red Wedding, Joffrey feels the need to tell his grandfather, a strong king acts boldly. Tywin doesn't react well to this and with good reason. Kings are at the top of the game, with everything to lose and nothing to gain outside of maintaining the status quo. Bold actions find their greatest wisdom in those with nothing to lose. Robert Baratheon was bold when he led his rebellion, for instance. What stands out about Joffrey's comment, contrasted with Tywin's reaction, is that Tywin's actions at the end of Game of Thrones most certainly fall into the bold category. Yes, they do. And as we said, Tywin effectively goes to war with what could reasonably be called the rest of the Seven Kingdoms without a single ally. This was certainly bold and means that it was either stupid or Tywin had very much to lose if he had acted differently. Which seems likely if Stannis Baratheon were to assume the throne. And most assume that Stannis would put all the Lannisters' heads on spikes 
in the name of justice. So what was Tywin thinking? It seems like he must have known he was operating from a position of weakness, one against many, and it's likely that he initially believed Riverrun was the key. The old alliance was Stark, Arryn, Tully, and Baratheon. With Jon Arryn dead and Ned Stark a captive, women and boys were ruling the Eyrie and Winterfell, and both of those women were Tully's. Taking Riverrun would give him Hoster and Edmure Tully as hostages to leverage against Cat and Lyssa, along with Ned, Arya, and Sansa in King's Landing, thereby eliminating three of the four houses in the old Rebellion Alliance. Right. He tells Tyrion early on in the Riverlands that once Jaime takes Riverrun, unless the Starks and the Arryns come forth to oppose us, this war is as good as won. And while Tyrion assures his father the Arryns won't be a problem, and quote, the Starks are another matter. Tywin reminds him that Ned is a prisoner in King's Landing, and when Kevin warns that Rob sits at Moat Kaelin with a strong army, Tywin dismisses him. No sword is strong until it's been tempered, he says. So most likely he's still thinking that he could leverage his hostages to keep the Starks out of the fighting. It all more or less fits with his statement that war is butcher's work and Rob Stark won't have a stomach for it. So looking at strategy, early on in the conflict, Tywin amassed a host and Edmure amassed a host in response. Tywin sent Gregor to raid the Riverlands, and Edmure let his host largely disband to protect their lands from the raids. Tywin successfully got into Edmure's decision cycle and made him act in accordance with Tywin's designs. Yeah, hearing Ned's thoughts about the situation in the Riverlands after he sent Lord Beric out to bring justice to Gregor Clegane. That may be precisely what Lord Tywin wants, Ned thought to himself, to bleed off strength from Riverrun, goad the boy into scattering his swords. His wife's brother was young and more gallant than wise. He would try to hold every inch of his soil to defend every man, woman and child who named him Lord and Tywin Lannister was shrewd enough to know that. Right, and upon hearing it was Lord Hoster who had insisted on sending the party to King's Landing, Ned thinks. Thank the gods for old Lord Hoster, then. Tywin Lannister was as much fox as lion. If indeed he'd sent Sir Gregor to burn and pillage, and Ned did not doubt that he had taken care to see that he rode under cover of night without banners in the guise of a common brigand, should Riverrun strike back, Cersei and her father would insist that it had been the Tullys who broke the king's peace, not the Lannisters. So Ned at least saw Tywin's game, and as we mentioned earlier, it may have been a much longer game than is immediately apparent. That is, the War of the Five Kings, at its outset, may have been more than just a stimulus-response type conflict. In any case, following Robert's death and Ned's imprisonment by Cersei, Tywin, now in a position of greater strength, elected to bring his host to the crossroads to sit in the path of even Arryn or a Stark host. Right. His assessment to Tyrion is that Rob Stark is untested and either has no stomach for a fight or will meet him in a straight-on battle that Tywin expects to win. Rob does neither. He formulates his own plan and successfully gets into Tywin's decision cycle. Yes, he does. Rob lays out his plan to Cat. It's a lengthy passage, but worth hearing. If we try to swing around Lord Tywin's host, we take the risk of being caught between him and the Kingslayer, and if we attack him, by all reports, he has more men than I do, and a lot more armoured horse. 
The great John says that it won't matter if we catch him with his breeches down, but it seems to me that a man who has fought as many battles as Tywin Lannister won't be so easily surprised. When Lord Tywin gets word that we've come south, he'll march north to engage our main host, leaving our riders free to hurry down the west bank to Riverrun. Catelyn frowned down at the map. You'd put a river between the two parts of your army? And between Jamie and Lord Tywin, there's no crossing on the Green Fork above the Ruby Ford, where Robert won his crown. Not until the twins, all the way up here, and Lord Frey controls that bridge. Rob has a smaller force than Tywin and wisely chooses to avoid a straightforward battle, since he expects to lose without surprise. Roose tries the surprise angle anyway, but clearly it's a feint. We know he can't be expected to win since it's established that surprise is unlikely and Roose only has a fraction of the northern host. So we get Tywin's reaction and Kevin's commentary on the feint as they swallow the bait. My lord, Sir Adam bid me to tell you the Stark host is moving down the causeway. Lord Tywin Lannister did not smile. So the wolfling is leaving his den to play among the lions. Splendid. Return to Sir Adam and tell him to fall back. He's not to engage the northerners until we arrive, but I want him to harass their flanks and draw them farther south. We are well situated here, Sir Kevin pointed out. Close to the ford, ringed by pits and spikes, if they are coming south... I say let them come and break themselves against us. The boy may hang back or lose his courage when he sees our numbers, Lord Tywin replied. The sooner the Starks are broken, the sooner I shall be free to deal with Stannis Baratheon. Tell the drummers to beat assembly and send word to Jamie that I am marching against Rob Stark. So Rob feigned giving Tywin the single conflict to decide it all and he fell for it. Tywin moved north and away from the ford, according to Rob's designs, and sent word to Jamie, which further aided in Rob's surprise on the other side of the river. Yeah, it's interesting that Tywin's message to Jamie led indirectly to Jamie's capture, and later in the aftermath of Rob's victory, with Ned dead, his own son captive at Riverrun, and King's Landing under threat from Stannis at Dragonstone, Tywin tells Tyrion and Kevin... Jamie has left us in a bad way. Roose Bolton and the remnants of his host are north of us. Our enemies hold the twins and Moat Kaelin. Rob Stark sits to the west, so we cannot retreat to the Lannisport and the Rock unless we choose to give battle. Jamie is taken, and his army for all purposes has ceased to exist. Thoros of Mir and Beric Dondarrion continue to plague our foraging parties. To our east, we have the Arryns. Stannis Baratheon sits on Dragonstone, and in the south, Highgarden and Storm's End are calling their banners. So Tywin decided to wait at Harrenhal and set the Riverlands alight from the god's eye to the Red Fork, essentially using the same tactic he used on Edmure to draw Rob into an assault on Harrenhal. I have no intention of remaining here. We must finish our business with young Lord Stark before Renly Baratheon can march from Highgarden. Bolton does not concern me. He is a wary man, and we made him warier on the Green Fork. He will be slow to give pursuit. So on the morrow, we make for Harrenhal. 
And Tywin expects the business with the young Lord Stark to be finished before Renly marches. The result is the waiting game Tyrion describes to Cersei. The city will not fall in a day. From Harrenhal it is a straight swift march down to the King's Road. Renly will scarce have unlimited siege engines before father takes him in the rear. His host will be the hammer, the city walls, the anvil. It makes a lovely picture. Harrenhal is close enough to the fords of the Trident so that Roos Bolton cannot bring the northern foot across to join with the young wolf's horse. Stark cannot march on King's Landing without taking Harrenhal first. And even with Bolton, he's not strong enough to do that. Meanwhile, Father lives off the fat of the Riverlands while our uncle Stafford gathers fresh levies at the Rock. The Tywin's Riverland strategy fails to goad Rob into attacking Harrenhal. Given Rob's ultimate strategy, as he tells Cat, I said nothing of Harrenhal. It's clear that Tywin tries to get into Rob's decision cycle and fails. Rob's attack on the Westerlands eliminates those fresh levies Stafford was gathering and ravages Tywin's home territory. This Westerlands attack succeeds in getting into Tywin's decision cycle and makes him march from Harrenhal to meet Rob despite the disastrous vulnerability he's going to leave King's Landing in. So, what can we infer from George going out of his way to demonstrate that Tywin is being outmaneuvered on the strategic field of battle? This isn't because of some inherent flaw with Tywin as a commander, as we see with Jaime being impatient and overconfident. Tywin was well positioned to reasonably expect victory at the Green Fork, and waiting at Harrenhal was the proper strategic call given the state of the field. Well, there's a case to be made that his underestimating Rob is a flaw, but again, this isn't manifested in command deficiencies on Tywin's part. He simply outmaneuvered as Rob takes actions that force Tywin to alter his war priorities and react to the conditions that Rob created. This is something Martin deliberately uses the text to demonstrate by having Rob lay out his plan to Cat and then Tyrion sum up the Harrenhal waiting game for Cersei, before showing Tywin reacting. What is he telling us and what are the overall implications for Tywin's character? So we wonder if his objective isn't to show us that a supposedly brilliant military leader can be checked when he can't see all the pieces in play. However, as fate would have it, Rob's plan failed due to the actions of Edmure Tully and the sudden death of Renly Baratheon, which left an opening for Littlefinger, ostensibly Tywin's agent, to bring the Reach into the Lannister camp. The resulting change in strategy led to Tywin's victory at the Blackwater, while a follow-on series of events laid the groundwork for the Red Wedding. Tywin was classically Machiavellian here taking advantage of the fortune or luck that circumstances presented him to remove a dangerous opponent from the board. And in the planning of the Red Wedding, we see again Tywin's scorched earth policy in effect. His line to Tyrion, Explain to me why it is more noble to kill 10,000 men in battle than a dozen at dinner, on the surface is a Machiavellian sentiment. The consequences justify the action. But it seems disingenuous when the true cost of the Red Wedding is measured. Hundreds, if not thousands, dead, and yet another acceptable limit exceeded. Right, and Tywin also tells Tyrion, My object was to rid us of a dangerous enemy as cheaply as I could. So he's basically acknowledging 
that he recognised Rob Stark's danger as a military opponent, but he fails to recognise the social and moral cost of violating the guest right in this society. Guest right is held sacred in the North. The world of ice and fire notes that only kinslaying is deemed as sinful as the violations of these laws of hospitality in Northern culture. But undoubtedly it was recognised in all of the Seven Kingdoms. Remember when Sir Duncan the Tall called on Lady Rohan Weber at Coldmote and the Sworn Sword, he felt the need to remind her, I came to parley and I have drunk your wine to ensure his safety. We learn from the World Book that during the disputed succession of Magor the Cruel, Tywin's own ancestor, Lord Lyman Lannister, sheltered Prince Aegon and Princess Rhaena under his roof, extending guest right and refusing Magor's demands to turn them over. So Tywin violated what seems like a sacred principle of chivalry, which could resonate in the social fabric of Westeros for generations to come. Remember that guest right can also function to allow diplomatic channels and thus potentially stops wars. And all of this is jeopardised by Tywin's actions here. At the same time, he was careful to have the blame laid at the door of House Frey, another important Machiavellian principle. But as we discussed in the last segment, his focus on winning his war with Quills and Ravens led indirectly to the downfall of his house. And so, our attention is drawn back to the words of Adam Marbrand in Game. Two battles do not make a war. And we have to wonder who exactly did win the War of the Five Kings, or if history has yet to declare a victor. On one hand, Tywin seems to be the classic feared ruler, embodying the principles of Machiavelli, who said it was safer to be feared than loved. Remember Cersei's King's Landing had never loved Lord Tywin. He never wanted love, though. Yeah, but on the other hand, he failed to create union within his own house. As a result, he missed critical opportunities to counteract the Tyrells' plotting, and he created the circumstances where the Wheel of Fortune swung away from House Lannister and starts his own demise. And Lady Gwyn and Ragnarok will be discussing how Tywin's role as a father impacted the story in our next segment. But first we'll have a reading of the moment the Lannister family imploded. Here's Tywin, Tyrion and the crossbow. Is that my crossbow? Put it down. Will you punish me if I refuse, father? This escape is folly. You are not to be killed, if that is what you fear. It's still my intent to send you to the wall, but I could not do it without Lord Tyrell's consent. Put down the crossbow and we will go back to my chambers and talk of it. We can talk here just as well. Perhaps I don't choose to go to the wall, father. It's bloody cold up there, and I believe I've had enough coldness from you. So just tell me something, and I'll be on my way. One simple question. You owe me that much. I owe you nothing. You've given me less than that all my life, but you'll give me this. What did you do with Tisha? Tisha? The girl I married. Oh yes, your first whore. The next time you say that word, I'll kill you. You do not have the courage. Shall we find out? 
It's a short word, and it seems to come so easily to your lips. Tisha, what did you do with her after my little lesson? I don't recall. Try harder. Did you have her killed? There was no reason for that. She'd learned her place and had been well paid for her day's work, I seem to recall. I suppose the steward sent her on her way. I never thought to inquire. On her way where? Wherever whores go. You... you shot me. You always were quick to grasp a situation, my lord. That must be why you're the hand of the king. You... you are no... no son of mine. Now that's where you're wrong, father. Why, I believe I'm you, writ small. Do me a kindness now, and die quickly. I have a ship to catch. His father did what Tyrion asked him. The proof was the sudden stench as his bowels loosened in the moment of death. The stink that filled the privy gave ample evidence that the oft-repeated jape about his father was just another lie. Lord Tywin Lannister did not, in the end, shit gold. And that was Tyrion Tywin and the Crossbow. A dramatic moment in the novels, highly significant for Tyrion's arc, and the end of the long shadow Tywin has cast over the story. Or is it? As Yokeboy mentioned, I'm back now with Ragnarag to discuss fatherhood in Tywin's arc, and maybe get a sense of how Tywin's influence continues to be felt in the story. Hi, Rag. It's nice to be taking this on with you. Hi, Lady Gwyn. It's good to be here with you to talk about Tywin as a father. This is the theme that transforms Tywin from a two-dimensional character who's part of the plot into a three-dimensional character more typical of Martin's story. And with regard to the scene the reading was taken from, when Tyrion finds Shay in Tywin's bed wearing the hands necklace Tyrion created, it humanizes Tywin by pulling him toward both his own father and his son. Yeah, it really does. We can't help but recall that Tywin was furious that his own father, Tytos, allowed his mistress to wear jewels that Tywin felt belonged to his mother. And when Tytos died, Tywin labeled this woman a whore and sentenced her to a fortnight's walk of shame. And it isn't just Tywin is mimicking his father here, because Shay isn't just any whore. She's Tyrion's whore, and it's Tyrion's necklace that he uses to mimic Tytos. So we see Tywin transformed into a creature of human frailty, raging against the sins of the father and the son. Exactly. Tywin is a man who shares his father's need for love and approval, yet rages against it rather than submit to it. This speaks to issues of inadequacy and jealousy related to Tyrion, which blur his show of victory after the Blackwater with some interpersonal competition with his son. Here, Tywin is stealing Tyrion's whore as he must feel Tyrion stole Joanna from him. So just as the sins of Tytos have been visited upon Tywin, Tywin visits his sins upon his children as well. Right, and while Jamie is clearly Tywin's favorite, he's also the least impacted by Tywin's parental influence. Tywin was away his hand for long periods of time, but that did little to reduce the mark he left on Cersei and Tyrion. 
It seems more likely that since Jamie fit the male archetypal ideal of Westerosi society, he suffered from a certain benign neglect when it came to Tywin's fathering. Tywin's long absences while serving his hand and Jamie being sent out to foster seem to have left him without a true sense of Tywin as his father. Well, that's not to say that Tywin had no impact on raising Jamie. Jamie fully incorporated the Lannister family attitudes towards debts in all its double-edged glory. We see this when he frees Tyrion and when he tries to bribe the bloody mummers and thinks of them hanging with pockets full of gold. But unlike his siblings, Jamie lacks an obsession with power and with ruling Casterly Rock. From the first time we hear him speak in Bran's point of view, he displays a complete disinterest in ruling, dismissing Cersei's desire to see him as Hand of the King, Tywin's defining role. Yeah, and unlike his two siblings, Jamie doesn't seem to have an inner obsession with Tywin. We mentioned earlier that he struggled to feel anything standing vigil over his father's body. His emotions at that point were far more consumed with Cersei and Tyrion. The only real impact Tywin's death seems to have on him is guilt from his role in freeing Tyrion, rather than any sense of loss tied to his father. Which is probably no surprise in light of Cersei's recollection of Tywin telling a young Jaime that love is worthless. So this lack of connection with Tywin continues to be revealed throughout Jamie's story. It seems to be one of the ways George explores the question of fatherhood. What is a father? Is it the seed or the years of sweat and, dare we say, love? Well, Cersei tries to use Jamie's fatherhood of Joffrey and Tommen to manipulate him, but that fails. He refers to them as his seed rather than his sons twice. And in contrast to his own lack of a sense of fatherhood, he seems to feel Robert as a father played a role in Joffrey's hiring a cat's paw to kill Bran when he referred to Joff being hungry for a pat on the head from that sot you let him believe was his father. But in spite of Jamie's rejection of his status as a father to Tommen, he does think of him as a son during the one scene where he actually acts fatherly with his go-inside advice after Tommen flees Tywin's funeral because of the stench. Hmm, so Jamie's views of fatherhood for his own biological children seem to reflect his own experiences with Tywin as an absent figure. And his thoughts reveal that Arthur Dane was actually more of a father figure to him than Tywin was. It's his vigil after being knighted by Dane and Dane's lessons, not Tywin's, that come to his mind as he stands vigil for Tywin. When Jamie sees his younger self reflected in Loras, he sets about trying to act the fatherly role Dane had played with him. Yes, and the Dane father figure theme continues after Cersei sends Jamie out to quell the Riverlands. Jamie's refusal to take the role as hand is another rejection of Tywin's defining role. The Cersei Jamie Robert triangle somewhat mirrors Joanna, Tywin, and Ares, but Jamie refused to be ruled by Cersei the way Joanna ruled Tywin. Right, and in the Riverlands, Jamie's thoughts again turn toward Arthur Dane's lessons over Tywin's. The significance of his recalling Dane's fatherly lessons is emphasized in his choice of companions at the outset. Jamie picks a combination of loyal men of the Westerlands and recent foes returned to the Lannister fold. Keep friends at your back and foes where you can see them is a lesson Jamie relies on, but he can't recall whether it was Tywin's or Sumner Craycall's advice he's embraced. It seems most likely his foster father Craycall's, but it's Jamie's inability to remember or distinguish between the two men that's most telling on the fatherhood front. As Jamie travels the Riverlands, Tywin's shadow lies over his whole journey, starting with his departure from a King's Landing that remembers Tywin's sack, 
and continuing with the ever-present horrors throughout the Riverlands, which are especially evident at Harrenhal. But Arthur Dane is present in Jamie's own thoughts and value choices. When Strongbore recommends a very Tywin-like solution for creating fear among the small folk, cut out their tongues when they lie to their lords. Jamie embraces Arthur Dane and advocates making the small folk love them, going on to explain how Dane handled the Kingswood Brotherhood. Hmm, okay, so moving on now to Tyrion. He's set up as distant and in opposition to Tywin from the very beginning of the story. One of the first things we learn about Tyrion is that Tywin considers him a bastard. All dwarfs are bastards in their father's eyes. A few chapters later, it's revealed that even as a boy, Tyrion used to fantasize about killing his father and his sister. The Lannisters are set up as the villains of the story, with Tywin as the distant, unseen leader of the house. But Tyrion is introduced sympathetically and aligned with the good guys, the Starks, through his friendship with Jon Snow. And it's really only as the story unfolds that his similarities to Tywin begin to emerge, culminating with his own claim of being Tywin writ small just before unleashing that crossbow bolt. Right. Unlike Jaime, Tyrion does accept the role as Hand when it's offered. As Hand, Tyrion tells himself he'll do justice, but he really sets about addressing the very things Tywin ordered him to do. Joffrey needs to be taken in hand before he ruins us all. I blame those jackanapes on the council. Our friend Peter, the venerable Grand Maester, and that cockless wonder Lord Varys. What sort of counsel are they giving Joffrey when he lurches from one folly to the next? Whose notion was it to make this Janus slint a lord? Yeah, so one of Tyrion's first acts is to take Harrenhal away from Janos Slint. And he searches for who was behind the order to kill Ned Stark instead of sending him to the Wall in accordance with Tywin's wishes. And the game that he sets up to catch the Cersei informant involves Littlefinger, Pycelle, and Varys, who are the three counselors that Tywin declared suspect. Tyrion's hand is outwardly proclaiming he's there to do justice, while inwardly he seems to be emulating Tywin. On the other hand, while Jaime roams the Riverlands, outwardly proclaiming to be Tywin's son, he inwardly tries to emulate Arthur Dane. Jaime's outward choice of embracing Tywin in the Riverlands is really a conscious choice to don a mask for public perception, while Tyrion's emulation of Tywin during his role as Hand is something subconscious, outside his awareness and control. Despite being the rejected son, Tyrion is the one who is shaped by Tywin and has a deep-seated need for his approval that is manifested in an unconscious emulation of his father. Mm, okay, now let's talk about Cersei. Growing up, she was the proverbial apple of her father's eye. Tywin shared his secret plan to arrange a marriage to Rhaegar Targaryen with his seven-year-old girl. And after Aerys' rejection of the match, Tywin took her to court anyway. Jamie suspects that Tywin sought a royal match with Viserys, or perhaps was waiting for Ilya to die, as he turned down every offer for Cersei's hand and kept her close to him in the Tower of the Hand. As we mentioned earlier, Aerys was convinced that Tywin's ambitions for Cersei hadn't died with his rejection of them at Lannisport. Kevin recalls a young Cersei is full of life and mischief and a remarkable beauty. She was a daring child, bold enough to stick her hand in a lion's cage. Her mischief included sneaking off to see Maggie the Frog, pushing her friend Malera Heatherspoon down a well so she couldn't speak Maggie's prophecy, smuggling Oberyn and Elia to see Tyrion, apparently against her father's wishes, and plotting to get Jaime to join the Kingsguard, also in defiance of Tywin. 
Her threat to have Tyrion's wet nurse's tongue cut out demonstrates just how much she embraced Tywin's view of the class system of Westeros. And it's also telling that the servants in the Rock feared to go against her even when her actions conflicted with Tywin's desires. So, a picture emerges of an incredibly spoiled girl, overindulged by her father. Her remarkable beauty and the image of her beloved mother likely added to this doting behavior by Tywin. The young Cersei seemed to fear no backlash from her father. She was willing to kill the noble-born Malara, show Lord Tywin's doom to the guests her lord father had shunned, and plot to have Jaime join the Kingsguard, not to mention conducting a clandestine, incestuous affair with her brother. But afterwards, something changed. Well, we never really get a tale of Tywin giving Cersei a sharp lesson, or see Cersei recall one in her own thoughts. But something must have changed. Cersei's recollection of Tywin's lesson to Jaime about the uselessness of love seems to be our best clue. Tywin took Cersei back to Casterly Rock after he resigned his hand, and one can only imagine that his attitude toward and treatment of Cersei changed dramatically. There could be another couple of clues when Tywin demands that Cersei remarry in A Storm of Swords, and she says, No, not again, I will not. And remember that Tyrion thinks, in the end, she will do as father bid. She had proved that with Robert. This seems to show that she experienced a sharp lesson of sorts in her betrothal to Robert that dampened the defiance that characterized the young lioness. Okay, so given his apparent change in attitude towards Cersei after the Jamie Kingsguard plot, Tywin's failure to react negatively towards Jamie afterwards seems odd. The sack of King's Landing may hold the answers. While most everyone else views Jamie's killing of Ares as an extraordinarily dishonorable act, Tywin would probably have seen it as a Reigns of Castamere gesture that mirrored his own extinguishing of Rhaegar's line. If Tywin ever thought Jamie needed a sharp lesson, his killing of Ares might have been proof that he learned it during his time in the King's Guard. And Tywin's lessons tie into the Machiavellian theme of love versus fear that Martin plays with. In this case, through contrasting Ned and Tywin, along with their children and their legacies after their deaths. Tywin tells both Jaime and Tyrion that you are not my son. Ned uses this same line on Bran after his punishment in the Godswood for disobeying his mother with his continued climbing. And while Bran's defiance is hardly as serious a matter as those Tywin was confronting, it does speak to Ned's willingness to accept the nature of the child over the parental expectations. Yeah, it really does. Tywin's sharp lessons are designed to crush and destroy some character aspect of the child, while we see Ned repeatedly accepting who his children are. And the love versus fear theme continues with the internal family dynamics. The tensions between Sansa and Arya are something that Ned tries to mend, while the tension between Cersei and Tyrion is something that Tywin tries to foster. Exactly. While Ned's love philosophy has fostered an attitude of Winterfell as home for the Stark children, Tywin's fear philosophy has created a sense of Casterly Rock as a prize to be vied for between the younger siblings. While Jon Snow once dreamed of Winterfell, he feels wanting it as a betrayal of Rob and refuses it on grounds that it sances by rights when Stannis offers it. The Stark yearning for Winterfell is the call of home, while the Lannister desire for Casterly Rock is more of a lust for power. Okay, and the fatherhood theme also plays out between Ned and Tywin for those who've picked up on the clues of Jon Snow's parentage and the ambiguous hints of Tyrion's. Ned's a positive father figure in Jon's life, and fatherhood is explored through a series of foster father figures throughout his arc. Jon thinks, 
Lord Eddard Stark is my father. I will not forget him, no matter how many swords they give me. So does this become any less true if he learns that Rhaegar Targaryen was actually his father? Probably not. On the other hand, Tywin openly expresses his doubts to Tyrion that he is actually his father. The World of Ice and Fire gives us more background on the Tywin and Aerys story, and seems to deliberately create a vague timeline that leaves open the possibility that Aerys might actually be Tyrion's father. As readers, we can guess and speculate, but we can't know. Even if it's true, would that make Tywin any less a father to Tyrion? Would the seed of Aerys somehow diminish Tyrion being Tywin writ small? We may never actually know the answer, but Martin's deliberate choice to leave open the possibility serves to ask the question. John's parentage is the more obvious example and far easier to digest given Ned's benevolent influence in his life. In the case of Tywin and Tyrion, the question of fathering versus siring is raised in a more subtle but no less profound way. Well, it definitely seems like George has made a clear statement on the nature of fatherhood here. And we're going to pick this up in our next segment when we discuss the Aries plus Joanna theories. But first, thanks so much, Ragnarok, for joining us today and for letting us use your analyses in structuring the commander, politician, and fatherhood segments. It's been a delight to be here, Lady Gwen, and please extend my thanks to Yoke Boy for your kind invitation to join you both. Well, you're welcome. We really enjoyed this, and we will link to your work on our website for those who want to read the source material. And I'll be back in just a moment with Yoke Boy for some Radio Westeros theorizing. But now, it's time for an advertisement from Westeros. Are you travelling through the Westerlands? Need a friendly place to feed and rest? Then I, Tywin Lannister, invite you to come and stay at Casterly Rock. Take a room overlooking the Sunset Sea in this giant rock that looks just like the lions of my house sigil. Visit the mines that harvest our gold. See a woman walking in shame through the streets of Lannisport. Or visit the dungeons in the bowels of Casterly Rock. And speaking of bowels, come and try our lavatories. The plumbing was overseen by Tyrion by my own appointment. It's time to find out if I really do shit gold, as goes the oft-repeated Jape. And whoever makes Japes of Tywin Lannister will get their knees broken by hammers. Casterly Rock, the home of the friendly and close-knit Lannister family. Hear us roar. Okay, so now it's time to move on. And we're going to finish up by talking about the Ares plus Joanna equals Tyrion theory. And this is a theory that's really divisive in the fandom. Lots of people actually hate it, in fact. And the first major objection seems to be that if Tyrion was the son of Ares, then the themes involved with Tyrion being Tywin's son might be destroyed. And since we've just discussed the theme of fatherhood and the idea of fathering versus siring, we thought we'd really break this down with that in mind. Well, as we mentioned in the previous segment, when we first meet Tyrion, he's the outcast of the family. Jamie, Cersei, Joffrey, and Tywin are the ruthless faces of House Lannister at that point. And for quite some time, Tywin's and Tyrion's characters seem poles apart. However, we start to see Tyrion being calculated and cunning. The more we see of his actions, the more we are reminded of Tywin. This theme culminates in Tyrion's statement, 
I believe I'm you, Rit Small, as he looses a crossbow quarrel at Tywin, followed by Jenna Lannister declaring to Jamie, Tyrion is Tywin's son, not you. I said so once to your father's face, and he would not speak to me for half a year. So Jenna's comments really spell out how similar Tyrion and Tywin actually are. And we've seen that Jenna seems to be a sharp observer of people, especially of Tywin. So we can understand why Ares being Tyrion's father might seem to ruin this complex theme and important dynamic between Tyrion and Tywin. However, we've given it a lot of thought and we don't see this as any kind of threat to the Ares theory. Yeah, especially in light of the siring versus fathering theme we raised in the last segment, the theory doesn't actually affect, undermine, or work against these father-son dynamics between Tywin and Tyrion. Tywin has influenced Tyrion throughout his whole life. He has, knowingly or not, set an example and shaped Tyrion into the person he is today, much as his own father did with him. Whether Tyrion was born of Aerys's seed doesn't change any of this. Tyrion is, and will always be, Tywin's son, a Lannister to the core, no matter if he has a different biological father. Tywin is Tyrion's father in the same way that Ned Stark is Jon Snow's father. Yeah, so as an objection to the theory, we just think it doesn't necessarily hold up. So let's look at the further evidence in the Ares theory. We must say that there's a thorough thread on the subject at Westruster.org called A plus J equals T, and many good discussions to be found at Reddit, Tumblr, and so on too. I don't think we're saying anything new here, but what we're going to do is evaluate the evidence. Okay, so to get started with this theory, we're looking for evidence that Joanna Lannister might have in some way been involved with Ares. In A Dance with Dragons, Danny wants to know more about Ares and asks Barristan if there was some woman he loved better than his queen. Barristan responds, Not loved. Mayhaps wanted is a better word, but it was only kitchen gossip, the whispers of washerwomen and stable boys. And shortly afterwards, Barristan makes it clear who this woman that Ares desired was. As a youth, Prince Ares was taken with a certain Lady of Casterly Rock, a cousin of Tywin Lannister. So it seems Ares lusted after Joanna Lannister, a notion solidified by the tale of her bedding. Barristan says, When she and Tywin wed, your father drank too much wine at the wedding feast and was heard to say that it was a great pity that the Lord's right to the first night had been abolished. A drunken jape, no more, but Tywin Lannister was not a man to forget such words, or the the liberties your father took during the bedding. The story is abruptly interrupted, giving rise to suspicions that there was more to the Ares-Joanna dynamic. What seems clear is that he was sexually interested in her. And when the World Book came out last year, these dynamics were indeed given more depth. And we already mentioned that while the World Book confirmed the rumors that Joanna had been in a relationship with Ares since his father's coronation, its author dismisses them as false. But on the other hand, the liberties Ares took during Tywin and Joanna's bedding are confirmed. Maester Yandel also confirmed that Rhaella dismissed Joanna shortly after her marriage to Tywin and said she did not approve of Ares' Quote, turning my ladies into his whores. 
So, while Joanna left court sometime after 262, we do know that she brought the six-year-old twins to King's Landing in 272, was publicly humiliated by Ares, as we mentioned earlier, and then returned to Castle Rock, only to die within the year giving birth to Tyrion. Okay, so the timeline doesn't seem to be a problem. In fact, we have numerous occasions following Joanna's marriage to Tywin where she's known to have been around Ares, most significantly, less than a year before Tyrion's birth. So now let's look at Tyrion himself for any possible further hints. First of all, he was rumored to be born with a tail and deformities not dissimilar to the descriptions given to several stillborn Targaryen babies, such as Danny's son Rhaego and Rhaenyra's daughter Visenya. So perhaps this could be some kind of hint. Next, he has mismatched eyes, green and black. Green and black are, of course, the colours attributed to opposing Targaryens in the Dance of the Dragons. He also has light blonde hair that's described closer to Targaryen than Lannister. It's also said he used to pretend he was, quote, some lost Targaryen princeling. And he confesses he used to enjoy starting fires when he was younger, perhaps a nod to the Targaryen words. That's right. And then there's his link to dragons. He seems fascinated by them, saying he used to dream of being on Dragonback. It's unclear whether these were literal dreams or just fantasies, but in the case of the former, they could be similar to the dragon dreams experienced by some Targaryens. Yes, so pretending he was some lost Targaryen princeling and dreams about riding dragons. This theory is also possible on the timeline. It's plausible, it has enough clues and hints laid out in the ambiguous manner that you'd expect. If it's true, don't say it wasn't under our noses the whole time. But the one thing missing at this point is a literary purpose for the theory. Yeah, that's part of any decent theory. But like others, we wonder, if Tyrion has Valyrian blood, could it help facilitate dragon riding? Remember those childhood dreams of riding dragons, and also that he designed that nifty saddle that he uses. It's still unclear whether you'd need Valyrian blood to ride a dragon, but the evidence is leaning further that way, with George saying last year that Valyrians kept their bloodlines pure to better control their dragons. And now, with Tyrion and Marine and Danny needing two dragon riders at some point, this is all possible. And in this sense, Tyrion could be both Aerys' son and Tywin's son, with both men having a very different effect on him. With Aerys, it would be largely biological, with this Valyrian blood. So, rather than being a secret Targaryen, we like to think of it more as Tyrion being a Lannister, just with a secret dose of Valyrian blood. So anyway, you listeners make up your own minds about Ares plus Joanna equals Tyrion, but we think it's at least worth opening your minds to. It seems suspicious to us that there are clear hints that Tyrion will be a dragon rider, and hints that you need Valyrian blood to do that, and a clear window for Tyrion to have Valyrian blood. The depth George has given to the Ares, Joanna, and Tywin dynamics is certainly curious. And going back to Tywin... George has said in an interview that Tyrion was named by his father, Tywin. And while, given the nature of fatherhood and influence, as we've discussed, we think that Tyrion will always be his son, as we said. 
But we can't help to notice that Tywin says to Tyrion, "Men's laws give you the right to bear my name and display my colours, since I cannot prove that you are not mine." And of course, Tywin's last words were, "You, you are no son of mine." So, on both counts, the reader can wonder if Tywin might have had suspicions of his own. At the very least, it's written to be ambiguous. We're meant to wonder, and we see another example of this ambiguity when Makoro looks into his flames and says, "Dragons, old and young, true and false, bright and dark, and you, a small man with a big shadow, snarling in the midst of all." Yes, and this sentence can be read two ways. Either there's a list of dragons, and then Tyrion. Or Tyrion is actually one of the dragons, so you can read it either way. So, as we said, the criticism that Ares plus Joanna equals Tyrion detracts from the Tywin and Tyrion dynamic isn't necessarily valid. But what about other criticisms to the theory? Many acknowledge that these clues are there, but consider them a literary diversion or a red herring. Yeah, perhaps to take the eye off John being a Targaryen or something like that, but it doesn't really work as a red herring, and it doesn't seem to obscure anything. The more we think about it, the stranger it is that there seem to be clues of some kind that would simply be used for some kind of ineffective diversion. Yeah, and I've got to agree that it doesn't really function as a red herring because it's not really obscuring anything. So again, we think some of the criticisms levelled at the theory just don't hold up. This could just be one of those theories that people simply don't like because they don't want it to be true. But we're going to go against the grain slightly and say that we actually think there's everything you should look for in a theory here. But no matter who his biological father is. Tyrion will always remain Tyrion, son of Tywin of House Lannister, and so that concludes our look at Tywin. Thanks so much for joining us, and we hope you've enjoyed our in-depth look at Tywin Lannister. Thanks also to Ragnarok for sharing his analyses with us today, and for joining us in our discussion. We'll link to his work on our website. Up next, we have a look at Theon Greyjoy, so we hope you'll come back for that. Now, credit where credit is due. Thanks to George R. R. Martin for giving us characters like Tywin Lannister, to Nine Inch Nails and Kevin MacLeod for allowing us to use elements of their music, and to Aziz Eldori for his rendition of The Reigns of Castamere. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also donate and comment on our content there, or connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, Google Plus, or Tumblr. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time with Theon. Bye for now. <laughs>